morning, everybody. Today we are embarking on a brand new sermon series. I'm anticipating that it's going to be about four parts long. When God's Word says that we should utterly detest something, But then we wander a little bit away from that. We think, well, maybe there's more than one way of seeing that. Maybe there's, I have an opinion, you have an opinion. Let's just be okay with our opinions. And then we walk away from that a little farther, and we think, I don't even know if it really matters that much to God. And then we end up over here somewhere, and now we're quite far away from where the Bible said we should be. Have I progressed to a place where suddenly I just want to worship God the way that I want to worship Him? Or am I worshiping God the way that He expects to be worshipped and acknowledged? Does my heart break for the things that break His? And if it doesn't, can I even call myself a biblical Christian? Should I be surprised that I don't experience the intimacy that the Bible talks about with the Lord? Join with me in prayer. Jesus, Lord, we get to say your name with boldness. You've allowed us that grace. We can say the name Jesus Christ. We acknowledge you, the Lord, Yahweh, God, the only God, the one true God. And we get to say your name out loud, Lord. I thank you for that privilege. Thank you for your grace and your patience. Could you come by your Holy Spirit? Could you excite us, Lord, for what excites you? Could you break our hearts today for what breaks yours? By the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. How many true gods are there? That's pretty easy to say in church when you know what's the right answer and it's up on the screen, (laughs) right? Of course it's the right answer. So if there's only one true God, are those who worship the sun or the moon or the stars that God created, are they going to perish in hell? Or are they just really worshiping the same God but in a different way? What about other religions who worship Allah, or Buddha, or Zeus, Molech, Chemosh, Ra, or one of a million other gods? Where are they going to spend eternity? What if they're really hospitable, like really nice people, kind, compassionate, and loving Are they just worshiping God by a different name? Because maybe maybe all religions are actually all religious pursuits are actually just a worship of the same true God. Maybe it's just maybe it's just important that you acknowledge a higher power. Whatever his or her or its name is. Whether you're into astrology or horoscopes or fortune telling or whatever. Are we all just going to be in heaven together one day? Does it matter to God whether you worship the queen of heaven or the king of heaven? The Bible is awfully clear about that question right there. But you could ask the question, is taking a strong stand on stuff like that, is it important to God? Doesn't he just want us to love everybody? And that's it. Maybe you don't believe such lies, but maybe you are unsure enough about the truth that were you to be put on the spot in front of other people, maybe, would you actually be able to stick out your neck and say, there is only one true God? 
His name is Yahweh, Elohim, Jesus Christ. And salvation is found in Him and Him alone. And if you and I are quiet on it, and it doesn't matter what your age is, if you and I are quiet on that, what is the next generation going to do? Doesn't matter your age. You can be 15. There's another generation coming. There, there's already young kids that are looking to you as your, where are you going? What's your example? There's a number of unbiblical ideas that could be described as universalism. That would be that, that the general thinking that all humanity somehow will get to salvation or syncretism that kind of blends a bunch of religions all just saying let's just all just make that blend them all together. Or polytheism that says there's many gods and they all stand in contrast to the biblical concept of monotheism which believes that there is only one true God and we actually know his name and who he is. According to a 2022 American Bible Society report, if you have a concept of what year we're in, you recognize this is a pretty new report. <laughs> I'll say this carefully. I'll give you the report if you want it. It's on my desk. It's thick. 37% of American pastors have a worldview that is consistent with the Bible. The rest of them, meaning the majority of them, hold a hybrid worldview known as syncretism. Meaning that while virtually none of the pastors polled would outrightly de deny Jesus, the majority of them would allow or encourage the acceptance of other religions, practices, or names of gods, some of which are already named, blending them together with Christianity. And of course, the percentage of Christians in their pews who do the same is much greater. But the Bible says this, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord, Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Accepting gods of all religions would be a very socially comfortable thing to do. Would you agree? That would sure be nice, and it might even bring about a man-made version of peace, but it is far from biblical. And yet, even though there would be those in this group here today that would be appalled at such thoughts, some of us are tempted to remain quiet because it feels uncomfortable to speak up. And by being quiet, we inadvertently enable demonic teachings to infiltrate the church. We would never, write, we would never open up the door and say, hey, demonic teachings, come on in. Never. But by being quiet, they're creeping into the church like mold through the wall. In this next four weeks, <laughs> here are the questions we're going to try and cover. Okay? We're going to try and get through number one today. But we're going to ask, what does the Old Testament have to say about rejecting false gods? And in case you're wondering these kinds of thoughts, like was that just a command for the Israelites? What does the New Testament have to say about this? Is this a salvation issue? Does God punish people for such things? Does He say He will do that in the future? Is this worth causing division over? And you could ask the question, if this is so important to God, why wouldn't He have included it in the most important commandment? Or did He? And if the Bible is so clear on this, why, how on earth could a Christian leader ever get to the point where they would reject it? And so ultimately, what are we supposed to do? And are there any mysteries that we should be discussing about this? Or are there things that we don't know? So we're going to start with number one today. What does the Old Testament have to say about taking a stand for the one true God and ruling out false gods? And I would even push it farther. Let's let it go past. And you can, in your mind right now, if you desire for your heart to be broken for what breaks God's heart, ask the Holy Spirit to take it past just intellectual knowledge and let it get down to your heart so that you begin to feel what God feels. And we're just going to start with the Old Testament. Do you guys know where the Old Testament is in the Bible? It's the front half. There you go. Right? Maybe even like the front two-thirds or three-quarters or whatever it is. But it's, it's the front. 
Okay? The first five books of the Old Testament were written by Moses, sometimes called the Pentateuch. But the instructions that the Lord gave his people are really clear. For instance, they don't need a ton of interpretation. <laughs> Exodus 23 says this, Pay close attention to all my instructions. You must not call on the name of any other gods. Do not even speak their names. Same chapter. Do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. But here's what you have we should do. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. There's not much that is gentle about that, is there? God expects His people to be decisive, aggressive, and standing for the one true God. And this is far more than just giving lip service to God. In that same book, in the book of Exodus, this is right in the... And we skipped over... We can't get all the Old Testament scriptures in here today, but we're going to try and cover quite a bit. In Exodus 32, there's a story about Moses' brother Aaron, and he gets... He leads the people to a festival of worshiping the Lord. But then he builds a golden calf or a cow and he says come to the golden cow let's worship the Lord a disgusting example of syncretism trying to blend yeah let's still call it the Lord although it's not the prescribed way and how does God respond he is so disgusted that what did he have in mind to do? He wanted to destroy the people completely and start over. Thankfully, he relented. But these passages alone, if we just stop right there, they make it clear that whether you, whether you are worshipping a false god instead of the Lord, or whether you are simply tolerating speaking about false gods as though they were equal to the Lord, or whether you are worshiping by the Lord by a name that He did not prescribe at the same time, or at worshiping a God at the same time as you're worshiping the Lord, these are all vile corruption in God's eyes, so highly offensive to Him that it would warrant destroying His people if it were not for His mercy. And we have just begun. God expects that we are going to worship Him by the name that He prescribes and in the way that He prescribes. Deuteronomy, it's the fifth book written by Moses. It's like a summary. Moses wrote it as a summary to tell the Israelites what they would need to remember in order to continue to find favor with the Lord. Let me just read a few of the passages in this book. Again, it's pretty self-explanatory. Deuteronomy 6 says this, Fear the Lord your God, serve Him only, and take your oaths in His name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God, and His anger will burn against you, and He will destroy you from the face of the land. Chapter 7, This is what you are to do when you come to these nations, and you see there are false gods. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. A little later in the same chapter, verse 25, the images of their gods you are to burn in the fire. Do not covet the silver and gold on them, and do not take it for yourselves, or you will be ensnared by it, for it is detestable to the Lord your God. Do not bring a detestable thing into your house, or you, like it, will be set apart for destruction. Regard it as vile and utterly detest it, for it is set apart for destruction. Is that pretty clear? Then the Lord goes even farther and He teaches Moses a song to give His people that they could remember 
these kinds of instructions, and in that song, it goes through and says, it talks about rejecting these false gods and serving the Lord only. In a song. And then we get, who takes over leadership from Moses? Joshua. Joshua takes leadership from Moses leads the people towards the promised land and into the promised land. And after their conquest, when uh, when Joshua is very old, he gives a farewell speech. And he renews exactly this covenant of the Israelites to the Lord. The theme of his farewell speech is a reminder that the covenant they have with the Lord is not to worship or even associate with any false gods. And in the following chapter, the renewal of that covenant is riddled with the same sentiment, ending in this famous verse from Joshua, 24, 15. And he says this, But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day who you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And the people's response made it obvious that they clearly understood the sentiment behind this because they vowed to serve the Lord and the Lord only. That is the sentiment that has been established through the first five, six books of the Bible, soundly clear. But it isn't only Moses and Joshua that laid this foundation for rejecting false gods. Through the next era in history, the time of judges and into the king's Many of the familiar stories that we know from the Old Testament, they all revolve around rejecting false gods and acknowledging the one true God. And if, and if we, this is a little challenge to anybody who ever teaches somebody an Old Testament Bible story. Make sure you're telling it right. A lot of those stories, if you read it in context revolve around rejecting false gods, acknowledging the one true God. If we want to tell it correctly, that often will end up being... Let me just give you an example. So we're still thinking about Joshua. At the end of his life, this is what it says in the beginning of Judges. Joshua died at the age of 110. After that whole generation had gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook Him and served Baal and the Ashrafs. That sets the stage for Gideon. Do you remember the story of Gideon? If you don't know what led up to Gideon, you don't get the story. What do you think of when you think of Gideon? One word. Fleece. (laughs) And you might think about people who like lap the water instead of, right? The context of that story of Gideon revolves around which God are you worshiping? False gods or the one true God? In Judges chapter 6, there's several chapters that account that story. They say that Israel, the first thing, Israel is being oppressed by their enemies, the Midianites, because they did not listen to the command of the Lord to worship, to not worship other gods. That's why they're under pressure, oppression. Then comes Gideon, a man who remembers that it was the Lord who brought them out of Egypt. It's the Lord who brought them out of slavery. Do you see the contrast? And then when the Lord calls him, what's the first thing that the Lord says to do on that night? Go tear down that Asherah pole. Right? Go tear down that altar of Baal. Use it to build a fire. Burn it and offer a sacrifice to the Lord. That's how Gideon's story starts. This is about which God are you worshiping? In fact, the people in that town were so furious 
They wanted to kill Gideon, but Gideon's father steps in and says he, this is his proposal to the people. Instead of killing Gideon, he just says this in Judges 6, if Baal is really a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. And the people bought it. Guess what happened to Gideon? Nothing. Because Baal's not a real god. It's the purpose of that story. One of the purposes, one of the key themes of that story, but then throughout the story, this is what you hear. You hear that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Gideon. He summons his people to battle. It's in this context that he asks for a sign from the Lord. And the Lord blesses him with that. As the story continues... The Israelites know that it's the Lord who is winning this battle for them because the Lord tells Gideon to send home like most of his guys except for 300 just so that the people will know what? That it's the Lord who is fighting with them. He's establishing himself as the one true God. If they will only acknowledge him, his, him as that. And in their victory... Gideon acknowledges, credits the Lord. The soldiers were fighting in his name. And then you know what happens? The people ask Gideon to be their ruler. Gideon wisely answers like this. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. He got it right. He's the guy who separated them from all these false gods. That's how it should be. And then moments later, they gathered their gold, gave it to Gideon. He makes a golden ephod, which is like the undergarment of a priest. And what does it say? The story ends the same way it begins. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. The chapter ends with this sad verse confirming what this story is all about. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Bereth as their God and did not remember the Lord, their God, who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. That is a story about worshiping the one true God versus false gods. What about Samson? What do you remember when you think about... What's one word that comes to your mind when you think about Samson? Strong. What's another word? Hair. (laughs) You know what the context of that story about Samson is? It's exactly the same as Gideon's. It's the story about which God you're going to worship, false gods or the one true God. It's in this context, after Gideon, that comes the story of Samson. The people are worshiping false gods. In that context, they're prostituting themselves to these false gods. But here comes a man, actually, before he's even a man, here comes his parents who dedicate this boy as a Nazarite which means he will be dedicated to the Lord. His entire life, everyone's worshiping false gods, but this boy is going to be dedicated to the Lord. In fact, the Lord sends an angel to tell the parents how to raise him. It's the Spirit of the Lord, that Lord that stirs within him as he grew. It's the Spirit of the Lord that blessed him. According to the Bible, it was the Spirit of the Lord that gave him power to rip the lion apart. It was the Spirit of the Lord that gave him power to strike down 30 men when they fought against him. And when the Philistines tied him up with ropes, it was the Spirit of the Lord that came upon him to rip the ropes apart like charred flax. In response to a thousand Philistines turning against him, he struck them down, crediting the Lord for his victory, not his muscles or his size. In fact, nowhere in that story will you ever hear any any mention of his size or his muscles. And in fact, it was not physically obvious to anyone where Samson got his strength from. And that's why they persuaded Delilah to see if she could get the secret out of him. And eventually they shave his hair and his power leaves him. Not because his hair gave him the strength, but because his hair was a symbol of being a Nazarite. 
And a Nazarite is someone who is dedicated to the Lord. And once his hair had been shaved, he could not shake himself free from his scalpers. Not because his muscles left him, but because in Judges 16, verse 20, it says the Lord left him. This is a story about which God you're going to worship. Where was Samson when he died? In the temple of who? The God of the Philistines. Maybe Dagon. And they're all worshiping their false gods, and here's Samson. His hair's finally grown back. Maybe he looks like a bit more like a Nazarite again. And he just asks the Lord, Lord, one more time. That is a story about which God you're worshiping. You guys remember that little account of the false god of the Philistines, exactly, of Dagon? Remember when the Philistines capture the Ark of the Lord? <laughs> and they, I don't know why the Lord allowed them to carry the Ark, but He allows them to carry it into His temple, and maybe for exactly so this story could be in the Bible. What happens the next day when they came back there, and their statue, Dagon, is standing there all proud, and then they put the Ark of the Lord there, and the next morning, what happened? Huh, Dagon fell down. That's weird. And so they prop him back up. And what happened the next day? He fell down again, but what happened this time? His head and his hands broke off. Why do you think that's included in Scripture? What about the story of David and Goliath? So often people think big man versus small man, and they get stuck there. What's the context of the story? Think about it. When David comes down to the battle lines, what's the injustice that he sees? A big man? That guy is mocking our God. He is mocking not our God. He is mocking God. 1 Samuel 17. Who is this uncircumcised, uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? In other words... This man who worships false gods is ridiculing the Lord's people? And when King Saul hears of David's willingness to go fight Goliath, what does he say? You're just a boy. Reminds me of people looking at Samson. Where on earth are you getting power from? Saul looks at David. You're just a boy. What does David do? He just reminds him where, he just reminds him where he's getting his power from. This is a story about who, which God you're worshiping. What does is, what is David say to him? The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go and the Lord be with you. That's what the story is all about. It's a, it, this is a story about the battle of the gods, if you will, of which there is only one. And that becomes clearer as the story goes on. Goliath sees David approaching and he shouts at him, Am I a dog that you're coming at me with sticks? <laughs> and the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you all into our hands. This is a story about the battle of the gods. That's what the premise of that story is. And if we're flipping through our Bibles, and this, by the way, is what I do, I, I, what I'm doing here, I don't know if you noticed, but I started in the beginning and we're just flipping through the Old Testament. And then you get into these books called First and Second Kings. And if you do not know what the theme of First and Second Kings is, I challenge you, do this. Read those two books in a short period of time you are going to recognize such a repetitive theme. It is obvious. 
Okay? But let me just explain it to you. The intention of First and Second Kings is not to record history. Other, other authors did that and could do that. And as interesting as those stories must be, they're not in Scripture. God didn't include, uh, choose to include them in the Bible. But here's what you, and I, and I know that because 34 times, 34 times in those two books, First and Second Kings, you hear something like this. It talks about a king. That's why they're called the book of kings. And it says something like this. As for the other events of whoever, whether it's King Solomon or King Jehoiakim or whoever it is, as for the other events of this king and his reign and all he did and the things he achieved, they're written in different books. The annals of the kings of Judah or the annals of the kings of Israel or wherever they're written. Books of the Chronicles, they're written somewhere else. What's the author communicating? That, that's not the purpose of this book. This pur purpose of the king, book of Kings is not to tell you all the history. There's a different purpose here. And so if recording history is not the reason for these two books, then what's the primary purpose for all these stories? And the accounts of all these kings, king after king after king after king, that's what happens. And the pattern is, the author repeatedly makes a comment on whether or not the king was doing right or doing wrong. Doing right, according to the Lord, was to serve him wholeheartedly, and to serve him wholeheartedly was to acknowledge him alone as God, and not to worship any false gods. That point is made over and over from King David all the way down through to King Jehoiakim. And throughout the book, the author keeps coming back to that same point, commenting on how each king did in that regard. If the king did wrong, they would lead their people to worship false gods of the neighboring nations like the Ashrith, Chemosh, Molech, or create gods that falsely represented the Lord, like golden calves that happened more than once in Scripture, or appoint priests from the Lord in an unprescribed way. But these things are all described in the book of Kings as committing sin. They're detestable to the Lord and provokes Him to anger. But then the author contrasts those who do wrong like that with those who do right. I'll give you an example of someone who did it right. King Asa. Look at him. 1 Kings 15. It says, Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. He expelled the male shrine prostitutes from the land and got rid of all the idols his ancestors had made. He even deposed... That means he took her from her royal position and removed her. His grandmother, Mayaka, from her position as queen mother because she had made a repulsive image for the worship of Asherah. Asa cut it down and burned it in the Kidron Valley. Chronicles, if you look at the account of King Asa there, it even says that he put to death people who didn't follow the Lord. This guy had some zeal for the one true God. But this theme through the book of First and Second Kings that there is only one true God becomes abundantly clear in chapter 18. You guys know what the story is in chapter 18? It's about Elijah and 400 false prophets. Do you think that fits the theme? <laughs> the whole purpose of the story is pointing out that the worship of false gods is completely useless and detestable no matter how sincere you are you can shout all day you can slash yourself with swords and what does Elijah do? he kind of taunts them, right? shout louder maybe your false god is on vacation sleeping Maybe he's relieving himself. That's what it says in the Bible. But Elijah, for instance, also said this. 1 Kings 18 makes this very clear what's going on here. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? This is what I was thinking right in the beginning of the sermon when I said, 
there's utterly detestable over there, and somewhere we get to this place, well, maybe there's more than one opinion. Elijah didn't think so. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Biblically, there can only be one true God. Second Kings, that's all in First Kings. Second Kings continues the same theme. And the first story is about King Ahaziah, and he is disciplined by God. Why? Because he goes off and follows false gods. Looks to them for wisdom instead of the Lord. Chapter 5 in 2 Kings is a famous story about Naaman. And when Naaman, this commander of a foreign army, gets healed from his leprosy, where does, he, where does he praise? Who does he praise? Where does he come back to? This is the place he comes back to. 2 Kings chapter 5. He says, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. That's the whole purpose of 2 Kings. And it's, maybe nobody was quite as zealous for demolishing false gods and, and those who lead others to worship them as Jehu. You guys know who Jehu is? I can tell by the expression on your face who knows who Jehu is. Some people have a smirk on their face because this guy was zealous for the Lord. You know what he did? He gathered up all the prophets of Baal, put them in a building, killed them, and then ripped the building down, turned it into a public toilet. How do you think? That seems really extreme, doesn't it? God commended him. I think that says something about God's heart. And at least 21 times through the book of First and Second Kings, we read the comment about a king who would allow or encourage false gods, and it's worded something like this every time. It would, you give the name of a king, and it would say, This king clung to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. And it's a reference to the way that King Jeroboam led Israel to worship false gods or worship the Lord in an unprescribed way. This is the theme of these two books, First and Second Kings. And I wish we could take time to read all of Second Kings 17. But knowing the theme of these books so far, you can he- almost hear the author's heart breaking for what breaks the Lord's heart. Because King Hoshea becomes the last king of Israel as the nation is taken captive by the Assyrians. It specifically says that they are being taken captive because they sinned against the Lord by worshiping false idols. And then, because the chapter goes on to describe the sin, they're taken ca- they have been taken captive because of their sin, and in describing the sin, it's false idol worship. And the problems in that land don't go away when the Assyrians come because they try to amalgamate worshiping the Lord with their false gods. And it's a massive understatement to say that that does not sit well with the Lord. Let me just read a snippet. To this day they persist in their former practices. They neither worship the Lord, nor adhere to the decrees and regulations, the laws and commands that the Lord gave the descendants of Jacob, whom he named Israel. When the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites, he commanded them, do not worship any other gods or bow down to them, serve them, or sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt with mighty power and outstretched arm is the one you must worship to him you shall bow down and to him offer sacrifices you must always be careful to keep the decrees and regulations the laws and commands he wrote for you do not worship other gods do not forget the covenant I have made with you and do not worship other gods 
Rather, worship the Lord your God. It is he who will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. They would not listen, however, but persisted in their former practices. Even while these people were worshiping the Lord, they were serving their idols. That, by the way, is the very definition of syncretism. That is detestable in the Lord's sight. I really hope that that American Bible Society report is wrong. Because over half of American pastors hold to a theology that would line up with what these people were doing and it was detestable in God's sight. However, the following chapter, chapter 18, tells us about Hezekiah, king of Judah. And this guy does well. And I don't know if you remember King Sennacherib, who was a really evil king, comes and taunts and is going to threatening to take over Jerusalem where Hezekiah is. And what, is, what, what do you think the premise of the story is going to be? It's in 2 Kings. It's going to be a story about which God are you serving? And Sennacherib comes, and what do you think he says? Hey, Hezekiah, do you think that your God is going to be able to stop me? Look at all these other nations. I conquered them. Their gods were completely useless at stopping me. But who does Hezekiah know? The Lord. He takes that letter, he presents it before the Lord. How do things work out for Sennacherib? How, specifically, how do things work out for 185,000 of his men? The angel of the Lord puts them to death that night. And where do you think, where is it that Sennacherib goes in the story? This story is accounted for three times in the Old Testament, and every time it includes some of these same details. Who is Sennacherib worshipping? In the end of the story, he's worshipping his god, Nisroch. And that's where he's murdered by his sons. That is a story about which god you're worshipping. And then chapter 21 of 2 Kings Tells us about the next two kings. And this is heartbreaking. They revert back to worshiping false idols, all sorts of false gods. But then in chapter 22 and 23, it tells us about King Josiah, right? He reads the law of the Lord. His heart breaks for what breaks the Lord's heart. And he realizes that they're worshiping idols in Judah. He repents, he removes any trace of the articles used for Baal and Asherah worship, does away with the pagan priests who would burn incense to the sun or the moon or the stars. He tore down the houses of male shrine prostitutes. He stopped people from worshiping Molech and Ashtoreth and Chemosh. And in fact, he got rid of mediums and spiritists and the household gods and the idols and all the other detestable things seen in Judah and Jerusalem. And he did well. And then, almost like at the end of the last couple chapters of Second Kings, almost like a, a crescendo of fireworks at the end of a fireworks show, but with a really negative sentiment. It just says, generation of king after generation of king, they revert back to following false gods. And the author slows down to say, to take time and then to say that describe they even came into the Lord's temple that he had told David how to build and Solomon made it and how it got pillaged the gold was stripped out of it all the good things taken out and it just really feels like the Lord has gotten tired and I don't know if that's the right way to describe the Lord maybe he's become wearied by these people who just keep rejecting him. Think about one of the saddest statements coming directly from the Lord. It's hard to even read this. So the Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my presence 
as I removed Israel, and I will reject Jerusalem, the city I chose, and this temple about which I said, my name shall be there. And you know what? We're not through the Old Testament, but we're flipping pages through. We don't have time to read through First and Second Chronicles. The sentiment is exactly the same. I'm not going to take time to go through a number of different psalms which the sentiment is the same. Isaiah, it's like the voice of the Lord almost gets louder. Isaiah, he points out the illogical thinking of taking a log, using one half of it to make a statue of a false god and using the other half of it for a fire to make a meal. Not only is such a thing detestable, he says, he describes such people who do that as being ignorant. They're delusional. They're misled. And they believe a lie. Like such a lie, it's the equivalent of someone who eats ashes thinking it's a good meal. Can you imagine going home and being so misled that you think, oh wow, plate full of ashes. Mmm. That's like someone who worships a false god thinking they're worshiping the same one true God. Not true. According to the New Old Testament, right up, and now we're into Isaiah already. In chapter 47, God seems to taunt those who practice magic, spells, and sorcery, and astrology, inviting them to save themselves from what's about to come. with the power of their false gods. And then he compares the uselessness of such an attempt to straw trying to save itself from a fire. Chapter 57, God uses words again so many times, like adultery and unfaithfulness to describe those who worship idols, and he compares the worshiping of idols as having gotten into bed with them. And then 57 verse 13 This is just one example, but he says, let's see if your idols can save you when you cry out to them for help. Why, a puff of wind can knock them down. If you just breathe on them, they fall over. But whoever trusts in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. I guess that's what happened to Dagon. A little puff of wind came. There is only one true God. And then we get into the book of Jeremiah. The words don't get softer. God refers to idol worshipers like being married to a prostitute. Think about that. How does that make you feel? If you just got married or know someone who got married this summer, how would that feel? Would you as a parent set your son or daughter up with a prostitute? How do you... Answer the question. How do you think God feels when he says something like that? What's a word that you would use to describe that? Say again. Broken hearted. Incredibly jealous. I actually don't know how a person like that can go on in a relationship. Jeremiah goes on, just to be specific, to call out the sun, the moon, and the stars to not be worshipped. Maybe in case you don't catch on, but just a little side note, the worship of the sun, moon, and stars is very, very drastically different than worshipping the one who made them. And that kind of detestable detestable things are still happening in Canada. They're as detestable in the Lord's sight as they ever have been. The book of Ezekiel, we're trying to flip through the Old Testament pretty quick, but in the book of Ezekiel, the Lord again compares His people who are worshipping false gods to it being like He's married to a prostituting wife. 
But then he takes time, like several chapters in a row, he dedicates to describing this. He says it's like he, he has groomed this lady by giving her everything possible, all the clothes she could ever want, the jewelry, the best food, the finest oils and the finest lotions, everything to make her into this beautiful woman. She rises to become a queen. And then the author takes, like it is like almost embarrassingly graphic detail about how this woman then begins to self-prostitute uh, herself so lustfully that instead of receiving, receiving payment, she actually pays her lovers for her illicit favors. Can you feel the condition of the Lord's heart? Let me ask somebody who's like under 18 living at home. If your mom or dad has to say something over and over and over and over and over, why do you think they do it? Can you feel the Lord's heart breaking? And we haven't even flipped our way through the Bible to get to the book of Hosea. Anybody know who Hosea is? The entire book, not to mention Hosea's, I'm going to say his entire life, is dedicated to communicating to God's people how he feels when his people cheat on him by worshiping false gods. The story is summarized here in one verse in Hosea chapter 1 verse 2. When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, go and Marry a prostitute so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. The rest of the book, as you can imagine, and just as Hosea names his children and all that, is filled with heartbreak that we can only imagine. Just think about that for a second. What if we would do, I don't, I'm not proposing that we should do this, but just think along. What if we would ask somebody in Pansy Chapel, hey, we're going to set you up with a prostitute. We'd love for you to be married to her. And then when she has babies from other men, you'll begin to understand how God feels. Like there's times in Hosea when he had to go pay the fee for his wife to come back to him. Why does God include that in the Bible? Tells us something about his heart. The book concludes, as you might expect, with statements like this, It is time to seek the Lord until he comes. You shall acknowledge no God but me, no Savior but me. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, and the patience and mercy of the Lord, that he would even invite somebody to return, is astounding. I'm going to speed up. We'll get to the book of Jonah. But did you know that the story of Jonah is also all about, guess what? Which God you worship. Chapter 1 is really clear. You can test me on this. You can go read chapter 1 and spills into chapter 2 and chapter 3 and 4 will confirm it. But chapter 1, the, the, the boat that he gets on when he's running from the Lord, those sailors, they all cry out to their gods. And then they find out that Jonah's running from the Lord. Then they turn to cry out to the Lord. And within a few verses, they are offering sacrifices to him, acknowledging him, crying out to him for salvation, and they make vows to him. Jonah confirms that in chapter 2 when he says salvation is found in no other name except the Lord. And that's going to be his message when he goes to Nineveh. Then you get flip through a few more pages, you get to Zephaniah. Another prophet sent by God to communicate God's heart to his people, and this is what it says. Chapter 1, verse 4 to 5. I will crush Judah and Jerusalem with my fist and destroy every last trace of their Baal worship. I will put an end to all the idolatrous priests so that even the memory of them will disappear. For they go up to their roofs and they bow down to the sun, moon, and stars. They 
claim to follow, follow the Lord, but then they worship Molech too. Another example of syncretism, which God finds detestable. So in conclusion, here's what I would say. It's pretty obvious when you read through the Old Testament how God feels about worshiping any other God. Do you think it should scare us a little or maybe make us just a little bit nervous that so many people throughout the Old Testament were deceived into worshiping false gods? Do you think we're exempt from that? Do you think we've progressed as humanity that we're no longer subject to deception, right? The Old Testament's really clear, and yet we have not covered one of the most obvious passages in the Old Testament. What is it? You guys ever heard about the Ten Commandments? Deuteronomy 5 lists off the first two of them, and it says this, I am the Lord your God, who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. The question is this, for you and me today, the question is this, how do we respond? Do we sit by quietly? Or are we actually going to be a people that stand in the gap? The stories told in the Old Testament are not just stories. They were intentionally preserved in Scripture by the Lord as warnings and examples for us. That, by the way, is out of the New Testament. We'll get there next Sunday. But think back to all the accounts in First and Second Kings. Think back to the teaching of Moses. The stories of Joshua and Gideon and Samson and Jonah and David, Jehu and Hezekiah, among many others. Think about the prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Zephaniah, and all of the others who were willing to pay the price to stand up for the one true God. They stood in the gap. Do you know what it means to stand in the gap? Just think about the wall around an ancient city. What was the wall there for? It was there for protection. It was defense. And when there was a break in the wall, if there was a hole in the wall, where do you think the enemy is going to attack? They're coming for that hole. And to stand in the gap means somebody should go stand in that hole. Stand in the gap. For what purpose? To defend against the enemy. And what's the value? Who, who's the beneficiary of somebody standing in the gap? The people behind you. And who are typically the people behind you? The next generation. And everybody here has a next generation. In Ezekiel chapter 22, we don't have time to read the whole chapter, but it is a chapter that includes the Lord rebuking His people for worshiping false idols, pointing out that they are defiled for exactly that reason. And then in verse 30, He continues His rebuke of the people, and He says, I looked for someone who might rebuild the wall of righteousness that guards the land. I searched for someone to stand in the gap, in the wall, it's a wall of righteousness, so I wouldn't have to destroy the land, but I found no one. It's not all bad news in the Bible. In Psalm 106, it gives the example of both, both Moses and Phineas, who also, it says the same words, they stood in the gap or stood in the breach, and they did it well. In this case, the Lord found no one. What's he going to find in Pansy Chapel? Do you realize that people who stand in the gap 
are in a vulnerable position, they will get attacked. Could be physical. There's going to be a cost. There is guaranteed going to be a cost because that's why in the book of Ezekiel, all the people looked at the cost and they didn't think it was worth it. But I'm asking today, and I think it's the Lord asking, if it comes at a cost to stand up for the one true God, are you willing to pay the cost? Do you agree with the Bible that the Lord is worth it? Why don't you join with me in prayer? Jesus, I pray that you would bring this truth to our hearts, that it would establish who we are. And not just when it's easy here on Sunday morning in a church full of people who love us and generally think the same. But when we go out of this building, Lord, and we walk through a world that is riddled with false idols. Help us to be wise in how we live. Help us to be those kinds of people that would look forward to the opportunity so that you would find us standing in the gap. And that when you look down on the people who call themselves Christians, inside of Pansy Chapel and in this community and throughout this country, that there you would find people who are standing in the gap. We do love you, Jesus. Amen.